Welcome to the podcast edition of Dream Talk Radio. I'm your host, Anne Hill, and every week I explore topics related to dreams, sleep, health, culture, and consciousness. Dream Talk Radio airs every Thursday from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific Time on KOWS 107.3 FM in Occidental, California. And you can catch the live stream at www.kows.fm. To find out more about Dream Talk Radio, visit my website at anhill.org. That's A-N-N-E-H-I-L-L dot org. Meanwhile, I hope you enjoy this edition of Dream Talk Radio. You are listening to KOWS LP Occidental. I am Ann Hill. I'm your host for Dream Talk Radio this morning and actually, coincidentally, every Thursday morning from 9 to 10. Uh, talking about dreams, spirit, culture, consciousness, and any little thing that happens to fall between any of those poles. So this morning on Dream Talk Radio, I have a very special guest on the phone. Um, we'll be, we will be talking for the next hour to David Lukoff, who is a psychologist. He teaches at the Institute for Transpersonal Psychology down in uh, Palo Alto. He uh, is has expertise in schizophrenia, transpersonal psychology, spiritual issues, meditation, compassion training, and uh, he is probably most renowned. I think one of his he, uh, great contributions is the um, the idea of spiritual emergency and making a place in the realm of psychology uh, diagnosis for people having a spiritual crisis of some sort. So I'm really interested to talk to him about that and dreams and all sorts of other things. So David Lukoff, welcome to Dream Talk Radio. Well, welcome, Anne. Nice to be here. Yes, great. It's it's lovely to have you on. I'm so glad you could you could uh, have a, a free day to come <laughs> on the radio. Me too. <laughs> yeah. Well, I thought what I would do is open up by reading the uh, your definition of mystical experience, which is now correct me if I'm wrong. This is the the text you had inserted in the DSM, the basic the, the Bible of psychological yeah. diagnosis, right? Well, I don't. I, the word mystical experience does not appear in the definition that's in the uh, DSM, but uh, it was. The direct it was exactly what we were trying to take into account. All right. So you were saying the mystical experience doesn't that that phrase doesn't appear in the DSM. Correct. But it was the occurrence of mystical experiences that get pathologized and uh, misdiagnosed as mental disorders that was the uh, inspiration for the work that. Um, Francis Liu and Robert Turner, both psychiatrists at UCSF uh, at that point, at that time, uh, and I did together to get that category into the DSM. The, the actual term that was being used uh, and still is being used by um, people in the uh, transpersonal psychology field was spiritual emergencies. Okay. Well, what I found on the web, and, and maybe this is something uh, that you published elsewhere, but I'll just read this because it's it's I I love this uh, definition, and it would be a great jumping-off point for our our discussion. 
So the mystical experience is a transient, extraordinary experience marked by feelings of being in unity, harmonious relationship to the divine and everything in existence, as well as euphoric feelings, noesis, loss of ego functioning, alterations in time and space perception, and the sense of lacking control over the event. Yes. Now, I don't want to take any credit as such for that definition because it really was just a summary of the people uh, who have done the uh, you know, groundbreaking work in that area like uh, William James and uh, Evelyn Underhill mm -hmm. uh, and so on. And uh, I think it was back in like 1988 that I wrote a review of the literature uh -huh. on uh, mystical experiences and that was, that's what led me uh, to be able to uh, support the idea that there should be a diagnostic category because uh, even though these experiences are often transient, they can be very powerful and pull people off center uh, a little bit to the point where they can be disoriented, uh, sometimes... Uh, uh, especially if they uh, have no framework for understanding these yeah. things. Um, they, it might really result in a period of time when they're uh, very focused on their inner world, uh, unable to work, or in very intense mystical experiences uh, even take care of themselves. It might be relatively brief in in terms of two or three days, but... In our culture, two or three days of uh, acting very strange will often land people in a psychiatric hospital. Yep. Uh, and, you know, once I got into this literature, I saw that uh, places like uh, monasteries and Zen centers are, you know, very familiar with these kinds of experiences and have uh, developed ways to help people through them. Um, there's definitely some stories that I uh, have made use of in this uh, area from, uh, for example, Zen Buddhism, where there are expressions like the stink of enlightenment. Huh. And uh, before enlightenment, you chop wood and you carry water. And after enlightenment, you chop wood and you carry water. In other words, yeah. when you have these experiences, people often feel very special. They can become inflated. They can think of themselves as maybe uh, actually being God or being Christ or right. being Buddha. Uh, and what they've had is a very valid experience, but they have no framework for it. So uh, there are accounts of some of the patriarchs of, of Zen uh, being told by the uh, Zen master uh, to, you know, go and spend the next six months shoveling horse manure in the stables because the experience they've had has been a genuine Kensho breakthrough enlightenment type experience, but they need to get grounded now. Hence the stink of enlightenment because you really have to get grounded and literally be out there shoveling manure. Yes. Oh, and, great. and right here at spirit rock, um, they are uh, also familiar with people who sometimes, uh, as a part of their meditation retreats, uh, become a little disoriented. And in uh, one of Jack Cornfield's books, 
I'd recognize the title, but I'm not coming to mm-hmm. not coming into my uh, mind right now. Um, he actually has a uh, an account of somebody who, during one of his own retreats, uh, had one of these kinds of experiences and came into the dining hall, which you know, well, every the whole workshop was done in silence, including the meals, and he started kind of yelling and screaming. I see everybody's auras, and he started executing. Uh, karate-like moves. I mean, he was just bursting with energy and feeling like he had just had this breakthrough experience. And, you know, rather than send him to a psychiatric hospital, as has happened to other people in other situations like that, um, Jack Cornfield arranged for him to start working in the garden. Uh, he assigned a couple of senior students to watch over him, uh, had this person uh, start jogging because he was in very very good athletic shape and had a lot of energy to blow off, had him take hot baths, and actually ordered special meals for him with red meat mm-hmm. because uh, he felt that that would be more of a grounding diet than the vegetarian food they were eating at uh, Spirit Rock, uh, which he wouldn't have done if the person was a vegetarian. But, sure. you know, if the person ate meat, he thought that would help ground him. So all I'm saying is that Mystical experiences are, uh, I think most of the people in Northern California would have a uh, uh, a positive association to that term, but nevertheless, um, there are many people who have uh, fallen uh, victims to a kind of a medical model of these experiences as in some way psychopathological. Yeah. Well, it's striking how similar the fate of these mystical experiences is uh, in the literature to the fate of dreams, really. They, dreams, you know, uh, a la Freud, have been pathologized, and people don't really understand. And, you, you know, people have these amazing, extraordinary uh, out-of-body experiences in dreams and, and, you know, what to do with that. And a lot of the symptoms that you're describing for... Uh, mystical experience and enlightenment uh, moments uh, sound very similar to having a big dream. Oh, yes. I think that's the perfect word to use sometimes, I think, even in the anthropological literature, you know, that term big dreams. In other words, dreams that have relevance not only for that individual, but for the entire culture. Um, And there certainly are accounts of exactly that happening. You know, people going into dreamlike states, it, at, at a point in which the culture is, needs to uh, change its ways, either because they've... Uh, well, there's a famous story of Handsome Lake, uh, an Iroquois Indian in the 1700s, and the Iroquois culture had been decimated in their contact with the white culture. They were actually kind of a warrior culture that had gotten defeated by uh, whites, uh, the Caucasian population that had invaded... New England, and had more powerful weapons and so on. And so there they were, locked onto reservations and just uh, falling into alcoholism and other you know, problems. And he went into a psychotic-like state for about six months mm-hmm. and uh, came back with this vision of how the Iroquois Indians could um, live together in harmony with each other and with the white people, and he developed an alphabet for the Iroquois 
people, and he did all these things, all from spending six months in this kind of visionary state, to introduce another term that's used right. in the literature. Right. And my, actually, I, I would say that I personally um, learned about how to work with these kinds of experiences through uh, being in Jungian analysis for five years and working with my dreams. Mm-hmm. So that was a key uh, way in which I learned about it, but uh, uh, how to how to kind of work with people in who have had these kinds of experiences, and I've published uh, a few case studies about uh, how people who've had these experiences uh, can be helped to integrate them in a positive way instead of. Um, hiding these as kind of deviant experiences. Yeah. And that's really uh, all based on my own experience, which is kind of how I got into this whole field to begin with, is having had uh, one of these kinds of mystical experiences that threw me off center. Um, and uh, and re- mine was pretty powerful. Mine lasted about two months. Wow. but um, So it wasn't that transient. Yeah. Although, you know, I mean, I mentioned that Handsome Lake's experience was six months. So I'd say that for many of the spiritual emergency experiences, um, they can last for uh, a period of weeks. Yeah. Uh, the norm is, is, is obviously is less, but uh, it, does, it does happen. Well, how does one help a person through a spiritual emergency. I mean, I can imagine being in some sort of residential place like a monastery, Spirit Rock, some place where you actually can just focus in. You don't have to interact with the UPS delivery guy and, you know, the Comcast person calling on the phone. You don't have to do deal with that stuff. would be uh-huh. a lot easier. But how, in the, in the uh, context of, say... A clinical relationship. Would you help mm-hmm. somebody through something like that? Well, there has been some pioneering work in that area done by uh, R. D. Lang when he opened uh-huh. up a place in England called Kingsley Hall, which still exists. Um, and then in the states, in the San Francisco area, there was a center open. Well, two centers. One called Diabasis, that was opened by a Jungian analyst, John Perry. Uh, on like Union Street in mm-hmm. San Francisco, and the uh, San Francisco Department of Mental Health uh, would re- uh, refer people, or uh, mostly, I guess you could say, take people um, who were having their first psychotic breaks mm-hmm. to diabasis. And there was a similar place in San Jose called Soteria. And what was unique about it was uh, these places did not use medications, mm-hmm. and they would allow the person uh, with a lot of support. They had staff there who would watch over people if they were uh, uh, unable to take care of themselves or wanted to yell or scream or yeah. do something, you know, to let out. In fact, they were encouraged to let out whatever was going on in them. Um, and uh, the average length of stay there was between four and eight weeks. That's how long it took most people uh, to go through uh, 
one of these spiritual emergency slash psychotic episodes. Yeah. Um, and uh, there still are several Soteria uh, homes in Europe. I know there's one in Switzerland, and I think there's one in uh, Sweden. Um, and if you search online for Soteria, and I'll spell yeah. that S-O-E-T-E-R-I-A, you will find uh, a fair amount of material online about this very innovative place. Unfortunately, with the pharmaceutical, the power of the pharmaceutical country in this country, and uh, you know the medical model, uh, you know attaining dominance over all other models, even in the mental health field where mm. it really isn't a good model, um, these options are really not available to mm-hmm. people. Um, there's one place that I know of in Boston called Windhorse, which takes a Buddhist kind of perspective of sitting with people, not sitting in a meditation style, just mm. being with people in these states uh, and you know, continuing to show them compassion and support and encouraging their inner process to unfold mm. with faith that there is a kind of natural sanity behind mm. whatever's going on right now. And the person just has to kind of claw their way, you know, through back to that point mm. and they can best do that with support rather than with medication. Mm. And I'm saying this not to put down medication because uh, I have worked with uh, clients who choose medication. I think it should be a choice. Mm-hmm. And I've uh, also even encouraged some patients to uh, at times use low doses of some of the uh, powerful like antipsychotic medications, uh, partly because I was working with them on an outpatient basis. So they didn't have all right. the protections of being at a, you know, monastery or a soteria or diabasis place. So I felt they did need some medication to dampen down the intensity of what they were experiencing, so that they, they could be in therapy on an outpatient basis. Mm-hmm. So the, these aren't simple issues, in ter- but uh, it's clear that uh, we have the, the kind of pendulum has swung so far towards the use of medication and the medical model for these experiences that I'm, I, I do tend to emphasize the other side, which is that these are natural healing experiences for many people. They're kind of inner mythological journeys. Mm-hmm. Um, I've made a lot of use of uh, Joseph Campbell's work mm-hmm. um, in this regard. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, I'm sure many people know Joseph Campbell from oh, yes. the incredible work he did with Bill Moyers on PBS around mythology. There's an interesting story here where um, Esselin invited him to come to a conference they were holding on uh, psychosis, and he declined and said, I don't know anything about psychosis. I'm a mythologist. Oh, but they managed to convince him to come. And at the end of this, uh, he wrote an article and has talked freely, or did talk freely, he died about 10 years ago, uh, about everything that a schizophrenic person was encountering was contained in the repertoire of heroes, 
journey mythologies. Yeah, I would think Joseph Campbell would be among the top 10 picks of somebody to have with you when you are in a spiritual emergency. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Achilles is right there. Oh, okay. This is what you do. Right, yeah. right. Well, uh, m- many people uh, in these case studies that I've written, and, and, and I include myself here too, uh, after we've gone through an experience like this and we're tr- you know, just wondering what the hell happened, mm-hmm. you know, how, how did, you know, in my case, I spent two months thinking I was a reincarnation of Buddha and a reincarnation of Christ, and I was writing a holy book that was going to change the world. So, you know, after I got uh, after about two months, when yeah, my but you need to find an agent. Ground. How are you going to get there without an agent <laughs> with your right. holy book? Anyway, I interrupted you. Go ahead. Yeah. So after I got back, and I just you know was left with this rather powerful question of how did this? Uh, well, I was raised Jewish, so how did this Jewish boy think he was a reincarnation of Christ and Buddha? You know, yeah. people whom I essentially knew almost nothing about, having been raised in a fairly secular Jewish home, and really kind of thinking of myself throughout college and into graduate school before this happened, uh, I would have said I was an atheist. You know, mm-hmm. I had no interest in all that stuff. Um, and so Joseph Campbell was one of the first people that I turned to or stumbled across um, in trying to uh, make sense out of what I had encountered, and Jung was another person, very powerful yes, in that. absolutely. Well, Jung's Red Book, uh, I don't know if you've you've had a chance to look at it. I've, I've glanced at a copy of a friend of mine's, and man, oh man, I mean, that is the, that is the uh, Fodor's guide to his own uh, yeah. spiritual emergency, you know, with these amazing, intricate, colored plates and script that looks like something out of Tolkien, and boy, oh boy, just kind of an amazing world. Yeah. No, I've just seen some news articles on it. I I have a suspicion, I think I have some evidence for it, too, that I'll be getting a gift of that red book from my wife (laughs) soon. So um, uh, I'm very excited about that. Yes. When... He really is kind of a... Uh, a model of uh, what a modern uh, journey, you know, a hero's journey kind of is like yes. in, in that inner sense. Yeah. Yes. You're listening to Dream Talk Radio here on KOWS in Occidental. I'm talking to David Lukoff about, well, about a whole range of things, really. We started with the idea of spiritual emergency and how to define mystical experience and how it. Uh, differs or in, ha- in what ways it's similar from a psychotic break. And, and one of the questions I wanted to ask you is, how is it different? Is it just a different name or looking at the same phenomenon from a different angle? Or are there mm-hmm. marked differences? Well, this the, the uh, distinction that in the field of psychology, we would call it a differential diagnosis between uh, a non-pathological uh, you know, mystical experience and a psychotic disorder uh, has been, you know, a focus of maybe 15 articles that I've written mm-hmm. and several of these case studies. Um, and there's an area of overlap. Um, and there are uh, 
also cultural factors, such as, uh, you know, if a person has had an experience and is very puzzled and, you know, not sure what to make of it, and people in his social milieu give him the feedback that, you, you dude, you're crazy, uh, that could really drive the person in that direction. Mm-hmm. So there's both, you know, I think I, I can talk a minute now for, uh, you know, what I see as the key distinctions, but there's both an area of overlap and there's plasticity to mm-hmm. these experiences. Um, so uh, the key thing, I think, is to even entertain the possibility that even though the person, a given person might be acting strangely, uh, might be saying things that aren't immediately uh, understandable, um, that something powerful and important might be happening uh, on another level for them uh, psychologically. And so to, you know, engage them, make, you know, try to make contact, find out what's going on. Um, I would like to see psychologists or all mental health professionals and all people who deal with this. Actually, most people, many people end up dealing with ministers and mm-hmm. priests and so on in these contexts. Um, I would like uh, people like that to have more, some more familiarity with uh, what a mystical experience looks like, uh, what kinds of things people who have had mystical experiences will say, because sometimes they will say th- things that, uh, oh, I've seen God or I've talked to God, things that can sound with somebody wearing only you know mental health lenses on, uh, sound psychopathological, yeah. um, and yet, you know, also in some cultural contexts, they're entirely valid. So, I think a more of an appreciation for the range and variety of uh, what profound mystical experiences can uh, look like, mm-hmm. so that a person is even asking that quite differential diagnostic question. I think that's kind of the most important thing. Yeah. And I want to add in, as long as we're talking about mystical experiences, there are other types of experiences of non-ordinary consciousness that everything we've been saying also applies to, like uh, near-death experiences. Mm -hmm. Uh, They can be disorienting and life-changing and powerfully transformative, and yet afterwards a person can be anything from suicidal to um, uh, engage in rash occupational and uh, partner changes and stuff like that because they're disoriented by that kind of experience mm-hmm. and uh, possession experience. There's, there's a whole range of uh, yeah. maybe, uh, UFO abduction experiences and right. so on. So I'll mention four very nitty-gritty criteria that okay. uh, I've written about can, that can be used in even a situation like an uh, emergency room. Um, and I have presented on this to psychiatric residents and psychologists and so on. First of all, is this episode kind of, um, uh, I was going to say out of the blue, not, not very mm-hmm. you know, technical language. In other words, has this person been functioning well? Right. Uh, you know, did they graduate school? Did they have a social network? And then all of a sudden this happens. Right. That's a good prognostic sign. That's mm-hmm. a sign that you know this is a temporary period of time in that person's life. Mm-hmm. Another is a stressful uh, precipitant. Did right. something 
trigger it, an automobile accident, a, a, a psychedelic drug experience, a breakup with a boyfriend or girlfriend. Um, another one which goes along with those is a, is a, uh, a quick onset versus what is called insidious onset. When I worked at UCLA with schizophrenic patients in a clinic for new patients, you know, first episode, uh, many of these people went through a period of several years of a kind of slow decline into uh, a psychotic state. And, you know, I had no way of knowing if intervention very early could have really, really altered that. Mm -hmm. But at this point in time, uh, they had developed a, a pretty clear f form of uh, psychotic disorder, mm. uh, but it was a slow decline into it. So fast onset, sign of you know a spiritual emergency, mm -hmm. and slow onset would suggest possibly otherwise, because mm. there certainly are brain diseases. Mm. Um, and then, oh yeah, the fourth is their attitude about the experience. Mm -hmm. People who are uh, in some kind of spiritual crisis, another term we can use, and I sometimes use in this area, um, are often very open, trying to understand what's going on, uh, you know, want to talk about it, want to read about it, you know, uh, confused about it in an active way, you know, yeah. and um, a more of a sign of a psychotic disorder would be like somebody who is very uh, paranoid, thinks people are trying to poison them or do some awful thing to them or inject thoughts into their brains right. or something like that. So those are four very concrete things uh, that a, a healthcare professional could look at if they're in that role or mm. a religious professional of helping a person or a family or friends decide, you know, what's going on with somebody. And sometimes, you know, it does involve a whole network. I think that's yes. another, you know, sometimes people are, you know, consulting with each other, friends consulting with a rabbi, consulting with a MFT therapist. Maybe there's a psychiatrist or right. physician involved. You know, it's a, certainly often these are complex issues. Very complex. And it strikes me that, I mean, the overlap between the uh, expertise of a mental health professional versus the expertise of a rabbi or a pastor versus the expertise of a friend. I mean, hopefully there's some overlap, but often it seems that there's not really. They, you know, each uh, profession in the helping fields has its own, um, you know, its own coursework, and it rarely deals with stuff that it that can say, "Oh no, that's that's their purview." We don't actually have to, we don't have to, we don't have to go into that whole thing because if somebody goes over this line, then then you refer them to psychiatric services ah, or something. Yeah. Well, I chaired a dissertation of. Uh, well, he's published a couple of books, so I'll mention his name, Abner Weiss, mm -hmm. and his doctoral dissertation, which he didn't publish. Um, was a study of rabbis because mm -hmm. uh, and um, their counseling relationships. Rabbis spend between fifty and seventy percent of their time in what is essentially counseling mm -hmm. people coming in with problems, couples coming in with problems. Rabbis actually get less to sometimes, in his case, and at many schools, no training 
in how to mm-hmm. deal with this. Ministers often do take a couple of courses in counseling. Uh, so he he was trying to get this introduced into the rabbinical training because they're often in situations where they're having to, in a sense, reach beyond their boundaries of competence. Yes. So one of the pieces of work I'm doing right now uh, with the uh, California uh, Center for Multicultural Development is working with uh, faith-based communities on how to work with, uh, well, they self-identify as consumers, people who are receiving mental health services from the California, or usually at the county level, county mental health departments. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, this is particularly interesting to me because I'm uh, I'm preparing to teach a class that I actually developed this class on using dreams in spiritual mentoring or spiritual counseling. Uh, for a pagan seminary. I'll, I'll be teaching it next semester. And so the, the idea of bringing something as as basic to the human experience as dreams into a venue that, ne- I mean, there's a lot of historical and, you know, written precedent for using dreams, having dreams as, as uh, mystical experiences in all religions, really. Mm-hmm. But the mm-hmm. idea that that somehow dreams have been, uh, you know, oh, that's Freud's uh, thing. You know, <laughs> go to a psychologist mm-hmm. to look at your dreams. And so bringing it into the uh, the faith-based community has been really a fascinating, you know, looking for the, uh, the resources and figuring out, well, how do you frame this? How do you teach somebody who is... Uh, studying, you know, to be in a, this life of service and have this uh, this community to look after their spiritual needs. How do you introduce the whole idea of dreams? I mean, right. it seems like in uh, similarly to mystical experiences, the place to start yep. is with your own experience of such a thing. You know, how are you in particular called to what you're doing? Uh-huh. The, the whole idea of calling. And I think that's, um, you know, uh, exactly the approach uh, that people can take towards any non-ordinary experiences. Dream work is like the foundation, I think, for that, because it's where you learn to work with your own unconscious. And then if if you have a large dream, you know, you'll have some way of dealing with it. Yes. Um, Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that I teach at... Uh, a school where dream work is taught. Uh, as you know, uh, you've worked with Jeremy oh, yes. Taylor too, and so have I. And he teaches uh, well, a class at the Institute of Transpersonal Psychology. It's a great class too. When I sat in for him there at at, at ITP, it was so interesting to see uh, all these grad students, some of whom had a clinical focus, and others of whom had a more spiritual focus. You know, just in that one classroom, you had really the whole gamut of relationships to dreams, mm-hmm. dreams as a personal experience, dreams as an affect or a symptomology. You know, possible. Y- y- so it was just really interesting, interesting conversation. Mm-hmm. It's very fortunate. Well, of course, ITP, the Institute of Transpersonal Psych, also uh, teaches Aikido. Now, isn't it true that everyone there who takes something has to at least get a uh, fifth Q uh, belt or at least have a semester or two of Aikido training? Yes, that's absolutely true. The school has a dojo. Uh, Aikido is a required course uh, for the first year, twice a week. And the second year, uh, you can choose uh, Aikido or another 
body-mind practice, such as yoga or tai chi for your second year. But the first year, everybody takes Aikido. Mm -hmm. And so I integrated into my uh, coursework. Uh, Like next quarter, I'm teaching the introductory clinical skills class. Mm -hmm. And I've booked the dojo for one hour. And the class will go all into the dojo. And we'll be doing Aikido exercises for... for skills like attending, unconditional positive regard, you know, these mm-hmm. core therapeutic values, presence, and so on, that I think Aikido teaches better than almost anything else. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I should mention that we are uh, talking here with David Lukoff this morning on Dream Talk Radio here at cows and uh david one of the things that you and i do have in common is we're both aikidoists so uh i and i love that idea that i you know aikido is so great at the whole body part of the body mind thing Mm-hmm. <laughs> especially for professions where really sitting is pretty much the thing that you do maybe you could <laughs> you could say something about how aikido can t- can teach those uh, the qualities of presence and the other ones that you named well, I guess I'll, I'll talk to people who don't even know who, or excuse me, what Aikido is and say it's a kind of a mind, body, spirit practice that uh, comes from Japan originally. The founder's name is, uh, well, people call him O-sensei, uh, Morai Oshiba. And it's a kind of moving meditation, uh, like Tai Chi, but it's also a partner practice. Most of, if you watch a training in Aikido, you'll see that most of the time is spent training with a partner, and then you change partners throughout the training usually. And so you're always uh, working together with somebody. So it's a very good training ground for psychotherapy because everything that would come up. Uh, when you're encountering a client, is essentially coming up in these uh, Aikido encounters. So mm-hmm. we can look at every, even what would be called counter-transference issues, you know, issues of uh, attraction or dislike towards people. Well, often mm-hmm. we have those reactions, but with your uh, psychotherapy clients, you, you, know, you, you want to be aware of any of those reactions, and you also want to be able to... Uh, bracket them and contain them and be centered and meet the person for who they are. In Aikido, you learn to meet situations as they are. So it just seems like it's a very embodied way to practice some of the, you know, what Carl Rogers called, you know, core therapy characteristics, therapist characteristics, unconditional positive regard. Mm-hmm. You know, how do you train that? It, it, it's right. under, easy to understand it as an idea, and there's good research for it. How do you get that into your body, into your way of being in the world? And Aikido certainly, you know, as a way of harmony, uh, embodies that as a practice. Well, I'm trying to imagine other ways to train that into, and it seems to me that, the, as you said, I mean, the the value of Aikido training is its partner practice. I mean, I can sit in my room in, you know, in meditation and feel like, yes, I have this presence and I'm, I'm generating this energy field and so on. But really, it's, it's, it's nothing if I can't actually reflect that in relationship to another person. 
Right. You know, it's it's that feedback. It's that Aikido gives you that feedback of, well, okay, I have what I think is the idea of a presence that includes both people here, but actually I'm really just focused on my wrist that this other uh-huh. person is grabbing. You know, oh, okay, my idea of what I'm doing is way different than the actual physical touch that's going on right here and the, you know, the awareness and attention that's going on right here. Right, right. And because this is a class, um, you know, I can do things like have people try it, you know, not attending, you know, not mm-hmm. uh, trying to blend and just see what it's like for them and for the uh, other person, the UK, yeah. who's attacking, yeah. you know, just to, and, you know, so that it really, you know, becomes uh, part of how they relate. So when you work uh and we should probably mention your website. I believe it's spiritualcompetency.com. Is that right? Correct. Spiritualcompetency.com, mm-hmm. where you offer continuing education units for psychologists and all sorts of mental health professionals. And, and you go around and, and help train people in this this whole idea of how to respond to, to people energetically going through unusual situations. Um now I've just lost the train of thought of what I was going to ask you. Oh, yay, yay. Um, well, let's see. Oh, yes, that's my question was, do you use Aikido principles or uh, exercises in your work a field? You mentioned going to Sacramento and so forth. Uh, well, um, w- you know, part of the, w- what the work that I do goes under the banner of wellness. Mm-hmm. And in that context, I certainly talk about, uh, I try to be, you know, non-ecumenical, you know, mm. non-denominational. So I talk about meditation, yoga, you know, Tai Chi, uh, you know, uh, I often do mention Aikido, you know, sort of like as one of the options. Because mm-hmm. I think what, well, you know, uh, wellness centers ideally would provide for consumers is an array of options. I know, you know, uh, the day I went to uh, my first class uh, with Richard uh, Sensei, Richard Strozzi Heckler mm-hmm. uh, at, at Two Rock Dojo, um, I went there with uh, my wife, and after the first class, I walked out and said, oh, man, this is, you know, I I really want to learn how to do this. This is just amazing. And uh, Crystal looked at me like I was crazy and said, I don't want to be thrown, pounded to the ground and, uh, you know, have all that conflict in my life. (laughs) She prefers to do yoga and does yoga several times a week. So uh, I think it's important to, you know, see it in, as an option for most people. Yeah. Uh, it, but, you know, it, it also works to be part of a curriculum, which is where it is actually then mandated. <laughs> yes. So what do you see, I mean, what do, to you is sort of the cutting edge of, of where you see the... Um, the field of psychology in general going? I mean, I think you, you really helped uh, brings a, a shed a lot of light on the idea of the spiritual emergency and how, and how to differentiate it from uh, psychotic break or schizophrenia or what have you. But at this point, is that still, do you think, the kind of defining uh, 
the defining battle, I would say. I hesitate to use that metaphor, but there you have well, it. Yeah, well, I'd say no. Um, mm-hmm. You know, in a way, what's happening in the field is exactly how my I've, I've seen my own career unfold in that I did start with that issue yeah. 30-ish years ago. And now um, it has really broadened to how spirituality is a core component of cultural competency that all psychologists, all mental health professionals uh, need to learn. Mm -hmm. They need to learn everything from, you know, how to do a spiritual assessment, how to uh, incorporate spirituality into case formulations and treatment plans, uh, about religious and spiritual interventions and where they're appropriate. Uh, ideally, also be able to conduct some of them themselves, but that's not an absolute requirement. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, just also be able to collaborate with uh, religious professionals, another skill that isn't taught. So that those are the directions that I see the whole field going mm-hmm. to. Uh, not very fast. Well, I don't know. It's hard to say. I mean, I, there really was a time when, uh, for example, in the American Psychological Association, when I couldn't get a proposal accepted on spirituality 20 years ago. Hmm. Now, um, they are very open to workshops, presentations. They publish several books on spirituality and psychology. So I think psychology is taking a, a is really becoming quite uh, open to spirituality. It still hasn't, in fact, the slowest parts of the field are the uh, universities in terms of picking Mm. this up. Only 10% of graduate schools in psychology offer any curriculum on religious and spiritual issues. And that's from a a survey done last year. How was Um, that 10%, did you say? That's shocking. It is, yes. Well, in this context, I'll just mention actually that I'm now involved in, uh, you know, being one of the faculty for uh, the first uh, spiritually oriented PsyD program that is in the APA uh, model, and we will be going for APA accreditation uh, as well. But it's the only. There are about six that are religiously oriented. Uh, APA-approved uh, psychology programs. Yeah. Uh, there's one Jewish and five uh, various types of Christian. One, I think, is even Catholic. So, But this will be the first uh, spiritually-oriented one. So, PsyD meaning... Uh, psych- Doctorate of Psychology. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Doctorate yeah. of Psychology. Which is sort of the professional degree for psychologists. Okay. And rather so, than a research degree. So this is a so this is a, a venture not ITP based. This is some a new a new venture. Well, it's a new no, it's at ITP, oh, it is but at it ITP. is brand new. It's oh, starting okay. fall of 2010. Wow, fabulous. Well, that's very exciting. Uh, we are talking with David Lukoff for a few more minutes here on Dream Talk Radio. I'm really sad that we only have one phone line here in the studio because I would love to take calls. I'm sure people listening have all kinds of questions they'd love to to ask. But um, 
their loss, my gain, I guess. No. <laughs> Uh, one of the things I wanted to bring up is... Well, uh, we could try Skyping, yeah. or you could try Skyping people on oh, if they have internet gosh. access there, and well, then we're actually, people could call in. That's true. I um, That would really confuse my brain, though. So we're ah. gonna, <laughs> Just running the board and the phone and the, everything at the same time is is just about... Uh-huh, as, uh-huh. In fact, in my field of vision, I have this, this little uh, screen saver on this computer screen, and I'm like, why am I staring at that? <laughs> The uh-huh. whole idea of awareness when you're on the radio is an interesting concept, since nobody can actually see you. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. well, one of the things I wanted to touch on uh, in the time that we have remaining is the Ike Extensions, which is also uh, it's a program that you are involved with. And and uh, for those people who don't know what Ike Extensions is, uh, maybe you could you just give a little thumbnail sketch of the mission, and it it does ha- it comes out of uh, Aikido, and mm-hmm. in particular out of Turok Dojo. Is that right? Is this a uh, well? No, oh, um, okay. the founder of it is really a man who was a professor, uh, now professor emeritus at uh, the University of Chicago. Uh, Donald Levine. Oh, okay. And he founded it, gosh, about, let's say, 14 years ago. And uh, he, uh, I had him as a professor, actually, when I was uh, an undergraduate at the University of Chicago, but he wasn't into Aikido back then, nor was I. Mm -hmm. And then we discovered each other on the mat, like 20 years later. But um, he introduced Aikido into his classes in uh, social sciences, and uh, used it to present a whole different cultural perspective on conflict resolution. This is at the and University of Chicago? And then he started you know, becoming a leader and wrote a book on including Aikido as part of a liberal arts curriculum. And about six schools, I think Williams, there's six schools that have really essentially done that and make it you know, sort of part of their curriculum. Um, but then he also got involved in uh, organizing a program called Training Across Borders, or an event, which took place in Cyprus, together with uh, uh, Richard Strozzi Heckler, the sensei at Turok Dojo, and brought together uh, Aikidoists from all over the Middle East, I mean, like Israel and Palestine and uh, Morocco, and I, I may have some of the countries wrong, but there was like 12 or 14 different Middle Eastern countries together for like three days. Wow. And um, I mean, these were people who, you know, have had relatives killed by yeah. each, each other and stuff. Just, so it was a real chance to try to, for these people, you know, they were all training in Aikido. They really, at their core, had this value of, you know, harmony in the world, uh, a chance to, you know, plant some seeds like this. Mm. And they all, uh, Ike Extensions supported that, and then also a Palestinian-Israeli dojo project, um, and uh, has helped start dojos uh, in Ethiopia, where Mm -hmm. it's also being kind of incorporated into the educational system there. Um, Brazil, they helped start a, a program there, uh, which includes opening a dojo in the Flavelas, the worst, oh, wow. you know, yeah. inner city ghetto areas. And um, also in my uh, area, it has brought uh, people together 
in conferences to talk about Aikido and uh, therapy. Uh, so some of the things that uh, I just talked about in terms of introducing Aikido into my classes, I experimented on in uh, programs at some Aiki extensions uh, conferences. Mm-hmm. So Aiki-extensions.org is the website. Great. A-I-K-I-extensions.org. Which is really a, an extension of the, the vision of the founder of Aikido to uh, use Aikido as a force for bringing harmony uh, in the world. Exactly. Um, you know, extending it beyond the mat. Yes. Because if Aikido, you know, its vision is not limited to the mat. The mat is, a, the, you know, the training place for embodying it, but then the idea is to extend it, which is a core Aikido principle extending. Yes. So, you know, out into the world. Almost kind of an in-joke there with the Aiki extensions. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, Paul Rest, whom we both know, does sure. some of this kind of work by developing a low-impact uh, form of Aikido. So it doesn't limit it to people who uh, are at a certain level of physical condition or who might have back problems or things like that so that they can uh, also participate in it. And there's accounts of Aikido being used with people in, uh, with various disabilities, uh, mm-hmm. MS, uh, somebody who trains whose name I, I've forgotten, I'm sorry, but uh, in a wheelchair. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was a documentary made about her. Mm-hmm. Um, so Aikido really does try to look for these, or I don't know, to anthropomorphize it, you know, with these ways of... Uh, bringing harmony into the world. Yes. Well, one of the, the, I mean, to me, just the the continuing revelation of Aikido is how it's not a a passive thing. I bring harmony into the world by giving up my position here. It's really about the blend, and it's a very active thing. And so I love the subtlety of having an active listening or an active engagement blending with actually doing practically nothing. Mm-hmm. You know that 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 idea that in every moment there are this this infinite range of possibilities, and Aikido is just training your body as well as your mind to be open in that field and to sort of rest in that field and see see what openings occur. Mm-hmm. It's it's just a beautiful practice, and sometime I want to talk to you about dreams and Aikido because. Uh, I don't know about you, but I've actually had many dreams along the way in my training that have been very informative and instrumental in um, where I go and, you know, what my latest meditation is out on the mat. Mm-hmm. But at this point, I guess we're, we're rounding the 10 o'clock hour. And uh, David Lukoff, it, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. I really uh, appreciate your your perspective on a whole host of things. I guess, uh, around the psychology and spirituality frontier. Uh, we should probably let people... I've know. thoroughly enjoyed getting to talk about <laughs> these things with you. It's been a nice back and forth. Yes, indeed. Well, so let me... Uh, you, you are teaching at the Institute for Transpersonal Psych, and that is itp.edu. So http colon slash slash itp.edu. Uh, you mm-hmm. have your continuing education programs through spiritualcompetency.com. Mm-hmm. 
And you are also uh, working with Ike Extensions, which is Ike, A-I-K-I hyphen extensions.org. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Anything else you'd care to let people know about before we bid you adieu? Well, I'll give another URL of this project that I've been mentioning uh, about uh, Center for Mental Health Development. Uh, It's actually a spirituality initiative at mhspirit.org, and it deals with the kind of uh, county mental health level and has a lot of videos and audios from a conference on spirituality and mental health. Oh, great. mhspirit.org. People can uh, listen to audio and uh, watch video of this conference. It sounds fascinating. Mm -hmm. Was this Mm -hmm. a... a, How recent was this? It was uh, this year in June. Uh, There was a Northern California conference uh, in Oakland with about 500 people and a Southern California conference Mm -hmm. with about 400 people. And really good... uh, presentations, I mean, which we videotaped and have put up online. Well, fabulous. Thank you so much. And uh, David Lukoff, I look forward to following your work in the years to come as well. Excellent. Well, look forward to staying in touch, Anne. All right. Likewise. Talk to you later. Good talking to you. Bye-bye. That ends this week's Dream Talk radio show podcast. Thanks for listening, and remember to tune in every Thursday from 9 to 10 a.m. at www.kows.fm. This is Ann Hill, and I'll see you again next week.